Hey, Simon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation today. It's going to be all about language and how language makes us human, how it influences our thoughts and our consciousness and just everything that's going on about it. Uh, and so, you know, hope maybe we can start off with just a little bit about you and, you know, where does your fascination and your learnership of language come from? Well, to be honest, it's entirely accidental. I, I did languages at school like everybody does to some extent, and I, I more or less completely hated it. I didn't understand the point of it. I didn't like the way it was taught. I couldn't learn it. I had no interest. But um, when I was about 19, 18, 19, I, before going to university, I, I wanted to just get out of England and go somewhere, anywhere, basically. And the, the only thing that offered that was easy to do was going to a kibbutz on Israel. And so I spent six months there and three months of that was working with children in a, in a hospital sort of environment who didn't speak English. And I had to kind of immerse myself in, in learning Hebrew. And mm -hmm. I discovered to my astonishment that actually I could do it. You know, in context, in an environment where it makes sense, and you're seeing what, why people are using the language, you know, the words they do, it's much easier to learn than having some guy writing stuff on a on a blackboard and trying to figure out obscure grammatical relations that don't make any sense. So, so that was my first exposure to a a, a proper, you know, foreign language environment, perhaps. And then I also fell in love with an Israeli nurse and we had an affair and that, you know, that helps too, <laughs> to motivate you. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of it. And uh, then I went back to university and I didn't study language. I was studying English literature, really. Um, and But I became interested in Japan, mainly because I took up a thing called Aikido, which is a martial art. And... By the time I got out of university, I, I just felt the one thing I wanted to find out more about was Aikido, and I needed to go to Japan to do that. So I managed to find a way to do that. But I didn't, again, really think that I was going to learn Japanese. That just seemed like an impossible task. And uh, I'd expected that I was going to find enough people who would speak English, and I'd somehow be able to you know, manage that way. But it very quickly became clear that wasn't the case. So um, I, and again, I was teaching in a school. I was like 13, 14 year olds who had no, they had as much interest in learning language as I had when I was 13 or 14. So basically I had to learn Japanese in order to teach them English and I succeeded and they didn't. <laughs> so right. really I, I kind of just fell into it and discovered that it wasn't as hard as I had thought. And then one thing led to another. I decided to I needed to learn to read. I joined a translation company, and then I qualified as an interpreter, and sort of here I am kind of thing. So I, I've learned it from the ground up rather than from the top down, which in my experience of talking to other people and dealing with other you know, people who've learned languages in different ways, and particularly Japanese, it seems a better way to do it. Uh, 
because essentially we learn language from our ears. We don't learn it from our eyes. You know, as children, you hear it. You kind of, it comes into you through your ears. It doesn't come in through your eyes. So whilst it is useful to be able to read a language, a foreign language, that does help, obviously, especially at the advanced stages. If you want to develop a good pronunciation and, and a good feel for the language, there's nothing better than being thrown in the deep end, I think. Tough though it is. Yeah. Tough is the right word. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't imagine being in a situation where no one speaks the language that I speak and trying to figure out how to get about and you're just left with no choice but to learn. And I know I know lots of people who have done similar sorts of things and they say like, I mean, the first few months are rough, <laughs> uh, but you eventually you just have to pick it up, right? You adapt and, yeah. you know, we have this amazing capacity to take on new languages and um, it just, it evolves. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, thinking in that language if you're there for long enough. I know it is an amazing thing, but the, the, the thing about it is the, um, you know, it, it, you're basically back to being a baby. You know, when you were born, you didn't have language and you, you slowly pick it up and it takes, you know, several years for a child to get up to speed with a, with its own language. But the difference with coming at it from an adult is that you already know what you should be able to do. You have this great expectation that you can express yourself in the finest of detail using language and suddenly you can't and it's incredibly frustrating not to be able to say what you want to say whereas a baby doesn't even have that expectation and so you just sort of it's a gradual process of expanding your your consciousness essentially but uh, for an adult you're yeah. fighting that terrible battle of wanting to be able to say how you think it ought to be said and realizing you can't say it like that and even worse the fact that you're expecting it to be a certain way makes it hard if you actually understand how it is I remember particularly... Yeah, it's almost like you know your capacity, but you're unable to fulfill it, right? And that's right. And your wish to communicate, yeah. and it's just not there. Yeah, the and, and, and even when you do, I mean, one thing that always sticks in my mind is that, you know, one of the early things that you need to know as a any speaker of any language is how to say you must do something or I must do something. You know, that, that, that relationship between yourself and the world... The, you know, the, the necessity of doing something you must, that's a very key word. And in English, it's a very simple word, must. And when I discovered how you say it in Japanese, I, it was just, it's incredibly convoluted. If you translate it literally, it means it will not do if you do not do that, right? It's like, what? That's must? No, it can't be. And I remember... At that point, I just thought, this language is impossible. I'm gonna, I, and I just threw my grammar book away, and I thought, that's it. I, I just can't do that. That's that's too much. But after about three months, because I was in an environment where people are speaking Japanese around me all the time, of course, you very quickly, not quickly, but you you start to hear it being said, shinakadebanarimasen, and you think, well, you don't think. It's just that it it becomes part of you. And then when I went back to my grammar book three months later and I saw, ah, shinakerebenarimasen. Yeah, I've got that one. You know, it's sort of, it's it's the problem of sort of trying to get your own culture out of the way, get your own expectations about language out of the way, and just let it come to you. 
And the brain is a remarkable tool, you know, it's just a pattern recognition device and it, if you give it a chance, it'll spot the new patterns quite easily. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, uh, you know, our brains are pattern recognizers and uh, language is a, you know, a series of patterns and uh, organized in a particular way for yeah. that particular purpose, I suppose. And you know, you actually go into this quite a lot in your book as well, where it's like if we're talking about, you know, okay, so like if we look at the origins of language, right, mm. based on the research that you've done mm. um, and your own uh, experiences with it, um, you know, there's a sort of typical trend, I suppose, in, in evolutionary science that suggests that well, language seems to have evolved from something like um, apes, just making sounds and then being able to recognize that those sounds correspond or symbolize certain objects and then when you expand that enough uh it develops into a more um i think the the way you you phrase it is you go from analog to digital right um so is that your sort of understanding of it i mean i don't think i did a very good job explaining it yeah well i i think before I come to that specifically, I think I think the thing to to sort of uh, get out there is that the current understanding of how language evolved basically says, well, when our brains got to a certain size, they became language ready, and then then we were able to speak. I mean, that's the classic Chomsky position. He he said back in the fifties, he said, well, there must have been something that changed in our brains. There must have been what he called, uh, you know, um, well, mutation, but he said there's something in our brains called a language acquisition device. I mean, he didn't mean a little gadget. He meant just a biological change, something that allowed us to understand grammar. And one day that just happened. And in one individual suddenly was able to process grammar. And then that got passed on and, and we all learned to, to speak. But the point is, and this is still the case in, in even if you, you think about it in less specific terms to grammar, that our brain needed to be ready for language and that other animals' brains are not ready for language. Now, I, I was listening to, you did an interview with David Sloan Wilson a while back and mm -hmm. uh, he expressed it classically. He said, you know, that the, um, the difference between us and all other animals is that we have a capacity for symbolic thinking somehow we have a capacity for symbolic thinking. It's never explained how we might have got that thing. But, um, and, and also, you know, we, we cooperate. We have this ability to cooperate. Okay, where did we get this abstract ability to cooperate from? So I was reading all this stuff and I was thinking, okay, that's sort of theoretically plausible if we actually found something in the brain that would correspond to something that, that might look like that but but we've never found anything like that and how would you in any case just develop an abstract symbolic thinking it's it's sort of something that seems very implausible what seemed implausible to me so um i started thinking well the issue is not really grammar i mean grammar is the problem that we all confront when we're trying to learn a foreign language especially in a classroom they tell you all about grammar yeah. and it's very complex but if you go back to the person who's trying to learn a language from the ground up on the street, you don't start with grammar, you start with words. You need a word, you need have to know how to say water, 
or food or bed or you know just the very basic things that you need to survive you start with words and only when you've got a certain number of words do you ever need grammar because I mean for example I can speak a handful of words of Greek for example but I don't have enough words of Greek to need to use grammar because I just don't have enough words of it so it's uh, it, language doesn't begin with grammar it begins with words so the question is really where, where do words come from and I'd known for some time that, that um, well, let, let's frame back a little bit, sorry, but wor words are made up of phonemes, right? They're what language linguists call phonemes, that, what ordinary people call vowels and consonants. It's just the noises that we need. And there's a, there's a set number of them. I don't know if you know how many there are in English, but it's, uh, it's 44. I'll spare you the trouble. Whereas Japanese, for example, has only 20. Now, I started to realize that there's this discrepancy between the number of sounds that any language uses, and it, and it ranges from as many as 150, when you get into click languages, down to only 11 in the jungles of South America as a tribe there. So we don't actually need to have all these sounds, but somehow we must have started with a lot of sounds and what we've done is we learned to put them together. And then that thought was what really opened it up for me. I suddenly thought, that's how you start. Because if you look at how animals communicate, they make noises. You have two dogs, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they communicate with each other, right? They, they bark and woof and they, they can sort of indicate their mood by using noise. Well, that's what we do. And that's what we started with. And every animal does that well or mammals do so the problem for a dog and for a cow or a horse or whatever is that they've only got a very small number of noises they can make so they can't really attach sounds to different meanings because they don't have enough sounds so if you think what would be the first step towards words well it is combining sounds together so that you then in combination have a much greater range of different noises that you can make and that's the beginning of language and I call I, I characterize that as a digitization because mm -hmm. when well, you know dogs going woof it's just a, a, a holistic noise it doesn't break down into w-o-o-f like it would if we were writing it it's just a woof and a moo is a moo but if you were to say woof moo you could then say moo woof is different and if you've got three noises you can put them together and you can make combinations of different sounds that gives you a wide vocabulary and that would right. be the start of communication because it would allow you to reference more things right so if i'm understanding you correctly it's like all animals are able mammals let's say um make sounds right yeah and they make sounds to communicate not just for the sake of making sounds Absolutely. and f and for lots of different reasons and you can sort of just think about it in terms of like you know a monkey that has a particular s screech for a predator or yeah um you know a different thing like that i mean even in with my dogs like i know when you spend enough time with dogs you you know the different barks that they make what they're indicating which is a very strange thing um, 
but you can tell if it's a like threat bark or if it's just a hello or like who's at the door or just I want food or something like that. And, um, you know, they're just sort of slight variations, I suppose, yeah. on, on the same sound. Um, but what's interesting is that, as you say, so, okay, so if we have a limited number of sounds, phonemes, right, if you have two, you can make four combinations with it, right? And if you have three, you can make nine. It's an, uh, an exponential. Absolutely. Yes, exponential. Um, growth. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and very quickly, that gets really, really, really big numbers. That's right. With like 11, I don't even know what it is, but it's probably at least tens of thousands of yeah. different possibilities. That's, um, that's the Never point. mind 150. But what I want to know is like, okay, so you know, early humans, let's say, because um, I think you're right. I think that the start of language would have had to have started with sounds, but there also would have had to have been this aspect of, well, the specific sounds have to represent certain things and we have to have an ability to hold all that information together and make sense of it, right? Uh, and beyond that, to be able to come up with new ones, or different ones or, or yeah. more abstract ones yeah. you know because also sounds sometimes represent concepts yeah not just a specific thing like and animals can do that too right like a, there's probably a threat system yes. but it's not I mean, a threat sound but it's not specific to a particular kind of threat it's like it's probably you know more like run or something like that if we had to translate it or hide or whatever some some verb like that um as opposed to like oh there's a lion there you know 50 meters away everyone run well it probably just means danger you know danger yeah danger right you decide from the situation what's the best thing to do here you know um yeah or you don't and you decide afterwards because it's better to not have to think about it first right you got (laughs) to protect yourself first um Okay, and, and then and then so grammar comes in later because when you have a certain number of words, let's say, well, you need a way to structure and organize them syntactically in order yeah. to have communication be consistent. Well, to uh, express the time. relationship between things, that's yeah. the thing. Once you've got a certain number of objects that you've agreed on that a certain noise is associated with, like danger or food or sex or whatever, that then, then you need a way to show the relationship between things and that's the beginning of grammar but just to go back to your point about you know how does it how do we go from just having simple sounds to developing the, the ability to discriminate more finely um, the beauty of, of the idea of starting at a very simple point of just combining sounds is that once you've got that going then it allows you to start sharing ideas very simply, right? You know, there's water over there, or you know, whatever it is that you, you're you're conveying. So that means that every member of that community can share that knowledge. So the smartest individuals in that community are able to convey that knowledge to everybody else in their group, which means that there's an evolutionary advantage in being smart not just for the individual, but for everybody in the group. So that means that then suddenly you have a driver for having a larger brain. 
because right it's a selective pressure yeah. i mean uh, an adaptive yeah it's a threat. selective pressure because there is no yeah. accepted explanation at the moment for why we have large brains i mean our brains are three times larger than chimpanzees that happened over three million years which seems like an awful long time but in evolutionary terms it's a very short time so mm-hmm. whoa we want to go for a walk you can hear <laughs> yeah I think someone just came home or something. Okay. Or they think so, at least. Thank One you. of my dogs is deaf, so he just sometimes gets a feeling, right? <laughs> and then he's like, is someone home? And then the other one's like, oh, I guess someone's home now. And then they just go off each other. <laughs> hey, shush, come here. Come, Jean. Hey, come. No one's here. Um, so the, but so, yeah, so... The, go ahead. the interesting thing to me about thinking about language that way go on you do you can keep going i'm just shutting the door okay yeah sorry the other interesting thing about thinking about the origin of language that way is that you get two for the price of one it it gives you an explanation Mm -hmm. for why we have bigger brains because the development of language and the ability to share ideas even at a very primitive level would give a selective advantage to people who were smarter. Because up until that time, essentially in nature, it's the, you know a struggle for existence. The, the, the strong ones tend to win out. I mean, obviously, a smarter individual will have an advantage, but that isn't, that's only for that individual. It's not for the group, whereas if you have language, it's a, it's a group advantage to have somebody who's smart and can share ideas. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's both advantageous for the individual and the group, yeah. right? Because yeah. for the individual from a like let's say a sexual selection perspective, um those members will be viewed as having some sort of higher value or higher status, Absolutely. right? With this ability to conceptualize more abstractly and um I I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure it also ties into this aspect of being able to think about and plan for future things, right? Because with an increase in our abstract reasoning and creative capacity, we can then start to make plans for the future. Absolutely. Uh, and in order to, and, and that gives you not an immediate advantage in the present, but certainly an advantage over a long period of time for both yourself and for the group yeah. at large. Yeah, but it only becomes perceived by other people if you've got language to explain it. I mean, there's a certain level at which you could show some plans without language, but it's pretty damn limited. <laughs> if you go back to the scenario we we're talking about, you find yourself in a world where nobody speaks any language that you speak. Uh, you know, right. Like a- mimicry can only get you so far. Exactly so. Yeah. Because yeah. lots of animals mimic each other and it's some sort of primitive culture and teach it to their younglings but Mm. it's through sort of direct action and copying um but that's a lot more crude and difficult i would say than to be able to explain it and apart from anything else they have no ability to talk about time and if we're talking about plans we're talking about the future we're talking about sort of having a way of thinking about time that isn't just mm-hmm. sort of an abstract note. Well, isn't, isn't just anything. I mean, I, I wonder how your dogs think about time, for example, 
they may think, well, maybe I'm going to get a biscuit in some undefined moment in the future, but there's no sort of, you know, they, they can't think about tomorrow very easily. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question because, and, and it's a little bit, I guess, of a, for now, a chicken and egg kind of a question in terms of conceptualization of time, because I think, you know, intuitively, we kind of look at animals and say, they're living in the moment, right? They're not really thinking about the future. They might experience things that are residual from the past. Uh, they've certainly learned behaviors and things like that from past experience. Uh, but future is a very different story. And it's one of the sort of like, one of the sides of the double-edged sword of being able to think about the future is we can make the best of it or it also causes us to live in fear and worry about what yeah. might, all the bad things that might happen, yeah. right? And dogs and cats and whatever else, they don't seem to have that, right? They don't have general anxiety disorders and, right. <laughs> you know, uh, depressive rumination episodes and things <laughs> like that. And that's yeah. because, like, they, they, I mean, you would think that they certainly experience time, sort of, because... Well, they know, we they know when it's it time to be fed, right? They know when it's time to be fed. Yeah. And, oh, my God. Like, remarkably accurately. And here's another thing. I mean, this is not exactly the same thing, but did you know that dogs can get jet lagged? I did not. Um, yeah. When we moved from South Africa to Canada, uh, our dogs came with, and they were, and it's a six-hour time difference, and they were jet lagged, and they were not happy about it. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> they would, like... But it was just for a few days while it adjusted, right? But they would like sleep, like like dead sleep during the day. Mm. And then they'd be up just like cruising the house at night, just like what's going on? You know, like where's the daytime kind of a thing? Well, they, um, they, probably, have, and, yeah. they probably have worse jet, jet lag than humans do because as you were saying, they have such an incredibly good body clock that functions very precisely in terms of their normal daily patterns. So if you take them out of that they're still their body clock is still the same and they have nothing distracting them to tell them that it ought to be different there's nobody saying oh you're gonna have to wait another couple of hours before it's dinner tonight they're just going it's dinner time or it's you know so, yeah where's my food <laughs> yeah so they probably have worse jet lag than humans do actually yeah well they certainly don't like daylight savings and the, <laughs> that kind of stuff right for that when that transition happens particularly when the hour jumps forward and so sort of like mm. feeding time or whatever yeah. is not is an hour later they right. don't like it and <laughs> they don't i'm sure they don't understand it and they at like half past five they go and sit by the kitchen and they're like where's the food yeah um and then it's you know it's complicated but you know back to our sort of original point of like the so the evolution of language, now it's not exactly clear still, I guess, why that, how or why that evolved, right? There's still that original missing piece about like, well, why didn't it evolve for chimps? Why did it evolve for us kind of a thing? Yeah. What's your thought about that? Well, I, my main thought about it is that, well, there's two things, I, I think. One is that we haven't really studied enough yet. We're starting to. I mean, it's happening in the last 10, 20 years, maybe. Um, more people are going into the field and looking more carefully at the way other animals communicate. So you can see slowly, we're learning that other animals do have 
very, very primitive level, but they are combining sounds. There are species that we know that do that. And it, mm -hmm. it's hardly advanced at all. It's it's very, very low level. But the phenomenon of learning to, to combine sounds to mean different things is out there. Now, that's really important because that puts human language on a spectrum. And admittedly, it's like, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, the beginning stuff is just right at the very beginning. We're right on the end, other end of the hockey stick. It's an incredible, it, you know, it's an exponential spectrum, but it is there. And the other side of that is, well, the thing about language is that once it gets going, it really takes off. And, and because all the advantages I, I just said to you that, you know, it's not just about the individual that benefits, the group benefits. And that, even though we're still talking millions of years, that's a very fast development. So why humans? Um, that is ultimately that is an open question, and I, I can't answer that. All I can say, all all I can say is, this must be what happened. That we did do that. We put the sounds together. We learned to do that, and that's how language develops. And that's potentially available to any other species, except that it's not something you can teach your dogs in their lifetime. You know, it's we're talking hundreds of thousands of generations before that beds in. But that's still an awfully short time in evolutionary terms. I mean, if you think about uh, human language, the, I mean, the, at the moment, there's, again, no agreed date for when we started to speak. People have all kinds of different estimates. I mean, the, the Chomsky school of thought, which is largely still the, the dominant one, says probably about 70,000 years ago, based on essentially the fact that there seems to have been some kind of big change in our tool-making abilities around about that time. And we sort of, that became more sophisticated. And you see art and things like that. So people say, oh, that must have been when we had language. But in order to have been doing art, we would have had to have had fairly sophisticated language anyway. So my idea is that it actually started a lot sooner than that, that it probably, as I said earlier, it makes more sense to think of language as being the driver for the growth in the brain. So that takes us back two to three million years, even. So, yeah, and, and I suppose that sort of like seventy thousand year mark is also. I mean, it, it feels like there's also some assumption of like some magic switch happening yeah. that sort of turned on. Yeah. Right, and all of a sudden we have language, and yeah. we can do all these things. Yeah. As opposed to the gradual approach of like. I mean, it took two million years yeah. to get to that point, and that's where we're starting to see the evidence for it. That's right, and 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 there's another very sort of simple proof that that can't be right, uh, which is that we know that humans have been burying themselves for much longer than that. I think the earliest sort of certain burial is about 140,000 years ago, but then they have in South Africa. You know about the you know the caves where they found evidence that bodies have been buried deep in caves and things and it's like i think 600,000 years ago well i mean if you're if you're going to the trouble of burying a body that's not something you can do by yourself and it's you you need help to do that plus you need a reason it's like no animals bury themselves they just don't do it so for humans to have started burying themselves 
it's almost impossible to imagine that that would have happened unless we had some language going on that we would have said look I don't think we want to leave Shane lying around there you know it just doesn't look good let's cover him up so, yeah let's cut him up besides you know the, the, there has to be a conversation especially when you see that the bodies are marked with with ritual you know markings and things it's, that doesn't happen in a non-language environment it, it can't so 70,000 years has, has got to be wrong because what's really interesting is that this line of reasoning sort of seems to suggest that language precedes meaning. No, um, I don't think that. Okay, go not on. Preci- uh, precedes is the wrong word, perhaps. It's that although we didn't need advanced language to know the meaning of things, right? Because we certainly don't need to know the meaning of everything in order to interact in the world. And we most of the time don't. And oftentimes meaning is just presented as sort of very roughly as let's say like danger, right? Like you hear a rustling in the bushes, you don't go, what's that? It could be anything, you know, you just run because it's better to be safe and alive than, you know, smart and dead. Um, And so you might say, well, there's you, there's meaning that you've attached to that sound. Right. Right. It's not the same kind of meaning as like ritual burials, but it certainly is meaning nonetheless. Mm. And then as, as it sort of progresses, you get things like ritual burials, which is fascinating because there would have to be, maybe not have to, but uh, I would think that there is some abstract thinking that has to go on. And by abstract it's like internal representation yeah. beyond it, just informational processing yeah. and that you're aware of that yeah. more, more, moreover, right? Because there has to be some sort of line of reasoning or of logic or whatever you want to call it of saying, okay, well, I don't like that this person has died. Um, and beyond that, you know, what happens to dead bodies is they get ravaged by mites and animals and things like that and that doesn't feel right and i have the capacity to do something about it as a group maybe it's better to think of it that way because individually it's quite difficult um you know you otherwise they would just hide it somewhere or whatever but i guess the, the burial part is takes it to a different level yes of like actually taking time to think it through to be like well we're putting it, putting this person back in the ground, right? And, well, I think and the then other, you can attach all kinds of things to that, of like the return to the earth and you know whatever else you want. Well, I think the other the other big thing that's involved there, um, which I go into in the, in the chapter on identity, is the fact that because I can talk to you, I have a very clear sense of who you are uh, and a memory of you as an individual in the way you thought and what you did and all those things. So you're not just a you know, like a roadkill at the side of the road. You know, it's like, oh my God, that's Shane. That's I remember Shane, and, and it's like his his spirit. You know, the idea of the soul, which seems to be such a deep rooted idea in in all cultures. The you know the as far back as we can go, and in and the simplest cultures now still living in you know hunter gatherer type environments. They the soul is a very key concept for them and it's not difficult to see how language contributes to that and so once you have the idea of a soul as a 
separate identity that somehow you know the body dies but the soul maybe we need to take care of that you know so that maybe there's a journey that i mean the, the whole religious tradition of thinking about why are we here what what's this all about what happens to us where did we come from where do we go to all those questions arise once you have a certain level of sophistication in language and i think they they inevitably do and you read my chapter on religion that sort of explores the how that might have or logically would occur because it is it's about logic really i mean other animals that don't have language have logic your your dogs have logic i'm sure you've seen them sort of kind of figuring stuff out and it's that again we're back to the brain as a pattern recognition device that that's what it is that the only question is how many tools do you have to help the brain do that and and words are just a way of bringing to consciousness little bits of that reality that you're aware of and allowing you to to play with them and part of that playing with them is is asking questions it's like how do we divide up time why are we here why why is why am i suffering you know and and who am i and all those things that these are questions that occur naturally with language absolutely and and i guess the logic in animals we sort of loosely referred to as instinct yeah right followed patterns of behavior that are to a, at least a large degree genetically uh, ingrained right and we can look at epigenetics as well to sort of think about how you can learn and pass on yeah without actually teaching yeah which is fascinating um but a little bit sidetracked but so but i think, you know, I the, think the religious it, 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 sorry just to very quickly pick on my mind, in terms of instinct um i i talk about that as well that, that you know because you don't have you know a head full of other people's words and other thoughts going on in your head to influence you 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 the sense of your feeling of what's right or you know what we mean by instinct you instinctively do something is much clearer to you but in terms of the actual logical process something i've been i've been observing that we have a squirrel in our garden which we have a constant fight with i have a bird feeder and i'm trying to find a way to keep that out of his way so that he can't get into the bird feeder before the birds do and I have tried every which way to, you know, put it out of his reach. And I can see him coming along and just every time I do something new, he's just looking at it, he's going over it, he's figuring it out. I mean, that's not, that. By, I guess it's instinct to the extent that I want the food, but you can see his mind working on it. It's like, if I do this, maybe, man, I could get it that way. If I climb up there, oh, it's, it's a fascinating study of, just how smart animals actually are they really are i mean they've got the equipment they just don't have the ability to communicate it right and that makes sense right because they do that they do sort of problem solve but yeah. not in the same way that we do it well actually maybe in the, the same way. way i think it is the same way it's just yeah. that we have a more sophisticated means of using other people's ideas as well as our own you know and perhaps understanding on of it yes right because we have this sort of metacognitive ability to think about our thoughts right but that is words I, that's 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 what words brought to the game you know if we didn't have words right. we wouldn't have that ability words are what allow us to stand back from what we're thinking 
And and you're right. you're probably thinking as you referred to earlier about abstract concepts like something let's say justice for example. I mean justice is a kind of fairly sophisticated concept, and we're thinking well only humans have a concept of justice. But I don't know your your two dogs probably probably fight over what they consider to be the the right amount of food that they should get, and the other one's got more or something. You know that animals are fairly have a sense of justice for example, but they don't have a concept of justice that's just something that they feel whereas because mm -hmm. we're able to and again these words just as when you're learning a foreign language yourself you don't get to the word justice till you've probably got quite a way down you know the vocabulary path not to mention yeah. grammar and i suspect it would be exactly the same for early humans i mean it's it's uh, abstract concepts are, are uh, you know take quite a while to develop, but I don't think it's something. Well, to the extent that we have larger brains, obviously we we have more firepower now than than our chimpanzee cousins. But it's the language that gives us the ability to sort things out, to be aware that we're aware. Right, and what's interesting about the sort of abstract concepts part is that. We're not even very good at that. I mean, we're a lot better than perhaps we have been. Yeah. But fundamentally, being articulate is very difficult, uh -huh. right? And there is great power in being articulate. Yes. Um, and you, anyone knows this, right? I mean, speech is compelling and it's powerful and it's attraction. It's attractive, rather. And that's why, you know, people who speak well and articulate authentically they draw attention, right? There's something that's in us that moves towards it. Uh, and it's not an easy skill to learn. And, you know, it's interesting to think about how, like, the concept of, when you were speaking about justice, you know, I sort of think of Socrates. And he was like, uh, or maybe it was Plato, but whatever. In the work of Socrates, the whole thing was about what is justice and no one could really define it, yeah. right? Everyone could give you an example of, oh, well, this is how justice looks like, or this is an example of justice. Right. But justice itself is very difficult to define, and yet everyone kind of knows what it is. Now, we might not agree upon definitions, yeah. but we all have a sense of what is just and what is unjust. Yes. Um, and that still applies very much to all sorts of things, right? Like one yeah. of the most difficult things for people to conceptualize and articulate is emotions. Right. Right. Sure. You can describe the biological processes of it or the sort of symptoms and the hormones and the chemicals and mm. the reactions. And you can describe the causal relations of like, well, this seems to cause this and you mm -hmm. have this emotional experience. Mm -hmm. um, you can correlate different people's experiences to find out what's common amongst them. Yeah. But it's really actually difficult. Well, firstly, it's, impossible to articulate i think phenomenal phenomenology right? right like that's one of the big problems is you can't describe experience the qualia is this known in the in the, exactly. in the genre yeah mm -hmm. um and i think it's absolutely right and and for anyone who sort of hasn't really heard that it's like the th classic thought experiment that they talk about is you know imagine someone's born into a room that has been constructed that is made out of black and white and gray materials only. And that's all they're ever exposed to, right? 
And throughout this person's life, uh, they're taught everything there is to know about color in black and white, though. So they, the scientific understanding of it, you know, the spectrum, uh, the color spectrum of wavelengths of light, everything like that. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, you bring in a red ball, right? Will this person know that this, cut, that this is red? Um, or will they not know what color it is, just that it's different from the black and white? Right. Uh, and following that, you know, the, the line is like, okay, well, then there's some knowledge in experience that you can't get from not having the experience. Sure. Right. Yes. I mean, it, it, it is, everything is experientially based. And interestingly, just since you mentioned color, there's, there's a, quite a lot of literature about the evolution of color words and mm. the order in which they evolved. And they didn't all just spring out one day and somebody goes, oh, look, there's a rainbow. Let's just name all those different colors. It didn't happen like that at all. It was black and white generally seem to be the first words that, that occur. Maybe it's just light and shade, you know, that, that would sort of seem an obvious distinction. And then red appears to be one of the first colors. And again, blood, you know, that's something that would, that would sort of be very commonly observed. You'd think green would be, but apparently that, that doesn't seem to be high up on the list. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a timeline, and it does depend on the cultures, but people have done studies and looking at it, and it's very clear that mm. th they didn't all appear at once. And it's a sort of, um, you, you can have the experience before you can have the words to, to, to describe it. I mean, that's slightly different to what you're talking about. You're, you're talking about more abstractly about having the knowledge of something without the experience, and would you recognize it? when you saw it, if you only had the abstract knowledge. Um, I know, maybe, maybe, teenagers well, go, maybe teenagers go through that. <laughs> they have the abstract knowledge yeah. and then suddenly one day, oh, <laughs> they have the knowledge. Yeah, um, no, listen, what, what you're saying is, is um, right. I mean, we have tons of experiences that we can't explain or know, right? And mm -hmm. Typically, we don't think about them that much other than perhaps to re-experience them mentally or maybe mentally is too limited, but at least psychologically, psychophysiologically, maybe is the right word. Um, you know, you remember a moment of love or of connection or of hatred or of something like that. And it's very difficult to describe, but you know, you had that experience and that you can remember it experientially. And so I'm wondering... I mean, I wonder if the color, the evolution of color changed with how our eyes evolved, right? Like, I wonder if it was sort of concurrent evolution in terms of like our ability to, our increased ability to see color. I Do doubt you know about it. That? I doubt it. Um, I think they know, well, in terms of color vision, as you know, we can only see three colors. It's like red, blue, and green. And um, mm -hmm. th those give the combinations of those give rise to all the colors that we can see. And I think we know specifically the gene that did it. And I think it's several tens of millions back in, in uh, years back in time that we acquired that ability. Um, uh, something to do with seeing ripe fruit or something. That's the need to see. But, but in terms of your, your specific question about the evolution of vocabulary, I, I think you just have to think about your own experience in, in a new field, something that you 
are interested in, you become interested in, and you, you don't know the words for it. I mean, take architecture, you know, you can walk down a street and as a child, I didn't, I never, I, oh, it's a building, you know, a building, I knew a door, a window, a roof, that was about it. And then as you become interested in it, in the history of architecture, for example, you learn all, you know, the fancy words like architrave and pediment and all these things. They were there the whole time and you saw them, but you didn't actually need to discuss them with anybody because you weren't particularly interested. And I, I think mm -hmm. it's more likely that that's the case. It's a, it's a question of how much attention do you need to pay to any given aspect of reality? because it is or isn't important to you, you know, the stuff that you will have a specialist field, I'm sure that you can talk about that, I have no idea what you're talking about, and, and vice versa, you know. Um, so it's not about not having the capacity to do it, it's about not having had the reason to pay attention to it, maybe. Yeah, and also the, um, you know, a field of knowledge to draw from yeah. in the times that we're in, right? Yes. Like you could learn it and and discover all those things if there were no knowledge already existing about the architecture right, right. Um, and we're constantly on a journey of discovery as a human species into every little thing that we can find absolutely there are a bunch of people trying to figure it out not, um, not to mention in creating our own reality you know the metaverse and everything that's going to go with that all those aspects of dealing with a completely new artificial reality that, that we've created ourselves so yeah i mean and and the whole i mean we have we have just no idea what's going to come with that i mean we, have, we don't even have an, a good idea of how technology is influencing us right now because it happens faster than we're able to even think about it that's right um i mean people have ideas and theories and there's lots of good experiments being done to prove stuff but you know, it is by no means definitive answers to anything. And given the diversity of human of humanity and the human experience, there's almost never going to be a unified theory of anything. There's just too much complication and difference. Well, there's too much for to us like to be able to, to process, but maybe not too much for, you know, artificial intelligence to process in the future. I mean, that's kind of Ray Kurzweil's point about the singularity. That yeah. There's going to be a a point coming and it's maybe even in our lifetimes well in yours maybe not mine but you know when, when we get to the point where ai is smarter than us and that's then all bets are off because they're going to be calculating stuff that is accurately correct and they can then take actions based on that and we're not going to know why and in a way that that to me is what happened when we invented language, when humans invented language. It's like you've got to a point where what humans, I mean, when animals look at humans, they must have absolutely no idea what we're doing. I mean, they see it, but they have no conception. Maybe it doesn't really bother them because they're not even thinking about that. But in terms of the, the difference between having language and not having language, it's like the difference between having AI that is way smarter than than us and not having it you know it, it's you know, it's like a phase change it's it's kind of an mm -hmm. astonishing thing when it happens quite scary actually yeah uh, a little bit scary for the humans um i suppose it's it's good for the machines um, <laughs> and, and many many sci-fi tales have you know yeah. prophesied 
yeah. uh, such a future. And that yeah. may or may not be true. I mean, we, we don't know. We don't and some know. people think that that's good enough reason to not go yeah. down that route, but yeah. there's no stopping it at this point. Exactly. You can't not go down that uh, route. When the, when the route is there, you can't not go down it. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, because someone will do it. Yeah. Right? You just need one person, theoretically. Mm. I mean, it's a lot of one people, but it's you know, a chain, but I mean, you yeah. don't, it doesn't matter what kind of government or mm. control no. exists. It's like um, genetic engineering, it's, it's, it's going to happen, you know, people are yeah. going to be doing it. Um, and as long as the internet is available, then, yeah. then there's no stopping it either. That's right. That's right. I mean, what would stop it, I suppose, is like a solar flare or a mass extinction event. Um, but that would more likely just slow it down for a few thousand or hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and then there's some people who think that, you know, I, I mean, it's a little bit sort of like fantastical that sort of like the purpose of humanity is to reach the point of, you know, um, giving birth to the machines and to (laughs) artificial intelligence, so to speak. And I mean, that's more of a sort of afterthought more than uh, anything well, it's, else it's, it's, i don't really not, subscribe to that yeah it's not it's not really so much artificial intelligence it's artificial in the sense that we will have created the vehicles for that intelligence to express itself but it's uh it's partly because we we don't think of ourselves as being artificial but but we are artificial i mean language is an artificial device for conveying hints to what we're experiencing. I mean, you just talked about the difficulty of actually really closing down on what you mean by anger or happiness or justice or any of those things. But we're, we're able to, to approximate that because we have a, a sense of it. But we're, language is an artificial intelligence already in that sense. You know, it's, it's, I'm drawing on the resources of hundreds of thousands of years of human knowledge when I'm speaking to you. So it's not just me anymore. You know, I'm, I'm talking mm-hmm. with the voice of human history. So that's, that's artificial, you know, already. So by pushing it into another level, because our brains can't get smarter physically, we cannot evolve our brains to be smarter in the amount of time required to take on board what we're developing right now. So we have no alternative but to create an artificial kind of device that will allow intelligence to to get smarter but it's not really artificial it's just allowing intelligence to do what it's going to do which is to connect up and make more connections that that's really all it is yeah the distinction between natural and artificial is um it's silly i mean i understand where it comes from but you know you don't look at we look at things like buildings and concrete as artificial creations, right? But you don't look at the, the analogy I use is you don't look at a beehive exactly. and say, oh, well, the bee, that's an artificial creation. You're like, no, the bees made it out of other shit. And, uh, you know, it, it's the same thing. And the difference between us and machines is we're biological machines exactly. and maybe they're mechanical machines, but yeah. these are just ways we think about it. But exactly. fundamentally there will be physical, so I think physical, um, under structures that give rise to 
intelligence, let's say, right? It's kind of like the problem of the, you know, the hard problem of the mind and of consciousness is like, well, does the brain and everything else that goes with it explain consciousness or is consciousness more like an epiphenomenon where it happens sort of outside of but inextricably linked to the brain it's kind of like another analogy is like the software on your computer right yeah you have a set of hardware materials that on their own are useless but you put them all together you pump some electricity in there you write some code and all of a sudden you have virtually a living thing right in terms of it can do its own thing i mean you've programmed it too but so is your brain programmed it's Absolutely. not that different well that's what uh, culture is as well learn you know, things culture, exactly culture, yeah culture is a, a huge great program of, of information i mean that's what education is it's about downloading the software you know yeah. literally that i mean that's why it's so important because you need to have all this information to function you know in a society that depends on that knowledge and it's like units of, of, of software being downloaded, you know, just in the yeah, same way. And, and they're not even always good. <laughs> they're well, just functional. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, I've accidentally just sort of been found to work and we just hang on to them in that form because we know it works and we're not willing to change because we're very conservative by nature. Yeah, except the the few who aren't, right? Yeah. Who challenge the con the conservative view, and get often shunned by society for that, and then come back with all this new information that they found on their own because they didn't subscribe to the conservative view of things, mm. but they exist in a balance because if all of society went progressive, not politically, just um, yeah, if morally, it, I don't know. Yeah, it, intellectually, it would be chaos because yeah. there'd be no structure and no order, and everyone would just be doing their own thing. There wouldn't be culture; it would be anarchy. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, when it becomes overly conservative and there's no room for growth, then things start to crumble because right. life is constantly changing, and yeah. things need to evolve to the changing times. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you do, you see that reflected in our political domain quite well, easily. Absolutely. The thing is, we're now, well. yeah, no, but we're now at a point where, I mean, everything you just said applies within any, any society, no matter how small, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you start out with a tribe and the tribe accidentally or luckily or perhaps intelligently works out various ways of doing things, they become the tradition. And then, you know, as you just said, that some person wants to do it differently and they're, they're ostracized. And in the extreme case, they have to go off and set up their own tribe, maybe. So through history, that's that's the process of, of you know, splitting up into different cultures, essentially, is, is people have gone off and done their own thing because they weren't accepted within within their own societies. But we're now at the point where everybody is interconnected i mean this is a very new point for the world i mean it's maybe been a hundred years now that we've had the capacity to to talk around the world with people but nothing like now i mean just the fact that what you and i are doing now is incredible i mean mm -hmm. when i was a kid the idea that 
you could do this. Well, it was existed in science fiction, but that's about it, you know. And now it's just like the most normal thing in the world, and that's just going to increase. Yeah. So you know, the capacity. I mean, in a way, that the, the the overarching structure of the book is really about that. It's about how intelligence just sort of came together through language, and it's taken us to this point where we're now a single globe, and we have to figure out how to do this without destroying ourselves you know which uh, we're teetering on the edge of doing in ukraine by the way you know that's that yeah and we probably will be in various forms for who knows how long because mm. i mean any society that gets sufficiently large it, it has a lot of problems right it's the tower of babel um in the bible it's kind of like you build up too high and then there's too much disagreement and then it just doesn't work. I mean, it's not an exact... I'm not saying the Tower of Babel is a literal well, historical in the, fact. In the case of the Tower of Babel, it was God that got angry. It's like, hey, you guys are getting too like me. <laughs> but if you think... I, I think about it more or less... I mean, I think about it less than like, well, God was angry and more just like a result of mm. the sort of workings that are far beyond our current comprehension, mm. right? And in, it, it's sort of like a manifestation of human nature that may change, but mm. sort of at that point in time, and, you know, I'm sure some would argue still really relatively relevant today. It's like, this is how humans behave in these sorts of situations. Um, you know, it, it's like a, a more of a moral um, except, story. Except the, the argument I make in my last chapter, which I think is is kind of relevant to what's going on, now in Ukraine particularly, is that what's happened through history, if we're talking about how humans behave and what is human nature and so forth, we've obviously spent most of certainly history and probably a lot of prehistory fighting each other, you know, over resources. In a way, that's the, you know, the basic evolutionary thing. It's the struggle for existence. Somebody's got something you need, you're going to fight them for it if, if you can't negotiate. And that's really the issue is how do you get to the point where you don't need to fight or you don't have to fight um and that's an issue particularly now because we can't the the, the fact of atomic weapons nuclear bombs means that we we cannot go to war in the traditional sense of using every means at our disposal you know i, I yeah. can't because to start nuclear war mutually assured destruction Right, it's game over. So, yeah. where do we go? Well, what's happened within most countries with a long history is that they've gone from a period of warring states, you know, where different parts of the regions of the country have been fighting over who controls the country, you know, be that in China, Japan, Britain, Europe, all over Europe. You know, countries that we know about with the long histories of war have finally come together either through conquest or through a negotiated peace where they then take decisions that are made and they resolve conflict using words, not using the violence. So, I mean, if you and I happen to be living next to each other, which we're not, and you claimed a piece of my garden and said it was yours and or vice versa, we could have an argument about it and we could have a fight about it. And if you're stronger than me or vice versa, then I could just take it. But we've resolved a mechanism for dealing with that. So mm -hmm. the police will come in and stop separate us. 
and then we go to a place where you make your argument and I make my argument and it's decided by a jury or a judge. That's accepted now within most democratic countries. You know, that's how you deal with it. And mm-hmm. we now need to take that to the next level. We, we have to go to the point. I mean, why is Russia just moving into Ukraine? Because they have a grievance. Well, they think they have a grievance. So there ought to be a forum where that grievance can be heard. And it can be heard in a, in a jury of its peers and a decision made as to what is the rightful thing to do. And, and we do have that forum. It's called the United Nations. But it ain't working right now because, you know, the veto and various other things I go to in the book. But in terms of where we're going with this, in terms of how history has been, it's gone from a small series of interlocking tribes and cultures to a gradually large, you go, go to towns, states, countries, and now we're one globe. Mm-hmm. But the principle is the same. We have to figure it out. We have to work out how to live without violence. And we either do that or we destroy ourselves. I think that's about where we are right now. <laughs> it's an interesting yeah, moment of history. Yeah, particularly because of the violent capacity of our current technology. Right? Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, democracy has always been the sort of pinnacle of um, political sort of systems that well, we know least, of or that we've got a It's the least bad option. Exactly. I think we can say Now, it doesn't always work. And it's subject to all kinds of problems. I mean, even the, even the jury of the peers problem, right? It's like, well, Socrates was executed by popular demand of 500 of jurors, right? For corrupting the youth. I don't know why I keep bringing up Socrates. It's just, I don't have an obsession with him. It's just, it's come up twice now. Um, and so it's like, well, that was two and a half or whatever thousand years ago. Sure. And it's like, well, we're still at that point, right? It's like mm-hmm. there's chaos and there's never unanimity or there's rarely unanimity in a jury. Yeah. And it's like, well, because we have biases and we have preferences and yeah. we have different ideas of how we should live and how the government should sure. control things. And, you know, so there's never going to be, well, I don't know about never, but it's hard for me to imagine how there could ever be um, true peace in the sense of a utopian well, peace oh well there won't i don't be think that's possible no it, it, but, there's always going to there's always going to be conflict the question is how do you deal with conflict and and right. you know, for example in my country you know we had this referendum and we decided that uh, that the majority decided they wanted to leave europe i mean there's an argument about whether it was truly re- democratic and blah 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 but essentially the majority said we're out now a lot of people including myself think that was not a very clever decision and that we might have to revisit it at some point but the point is it did happen it was the decision of the majority and you know you just got to re- live with that and uh, unless you then start a new political movement yourself saying well i think we should rejoin and eventually enough people agree with you and you can reverse it and it's the same with a court decision or any anything else you're never going to get everybody going yeah we all agree that's not going to happen the question is, what do you do when you don't agree? Do you fight until the stronger one wins? Or do you use the force of argument to persuade people and, and you know, 
decide it on intellectual grounds. I mean, we're right back to what I said at the beginning. It's like being smart is evolutionarily sort of, um, it, it's something that evolution can select for because it gives you more opportunities than if you just went down to, well, who's strongest here? Because if, if it's just the survival of the fittest physically, then intelligence doesn't get a chance. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, like, I think you're right. And it's also by the metrics that have been gathered, right? We live in a time of more peace and less war than there's ever been in human uh -huh. history, despite the fact that it doesn't feel like it. Because <laughs> um, we're living in it. Yeah. But that progression is continuing, despite the problems and conflicts that are going on and that will go on in different ways and whatever but it, it's a it's a matter of progress of reduction of violence right um and we live in a society at least first world societies even third world societies but maybe to a less degree where violence is just an absolutely non-optional approach on an individual level right yeah. like you, it is just not tolerated yeah. you know it, assault is a real criminal charge and you will go to jail for it they will lock you in a cage if yeah. you put your hands on someone yeah. and it's, it's a remarkable accomplishment and it is sure it comes with complications and whatever but i mean the fact that that's really a thing is 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 quite remarkable and you know i've also thought i mean like the russia ukraine situation is just it's tragic right mm. it, it's just it's a despicable situation but what it all, especially in the beginning, I noticed when it first started happening, I noticed that I had, I mean, listen, I'm not very old, so I don't know about beforehand, but it seemed that there was never quite a unification globally about two other countries affairs right now. I'm sure there have been lots of global things and the social media and the internet have fueled the capacity to join things and, whatever and there's lots of influential factors but mm. this this sort of like uh colonial colonialist approach of like we're going to take what we want by force has been met with fierce resistance from the whole world basically maybe minus yeah. one or two because of political bullshit but yeah. um but the reason for and that now is... yeah but, and, but the, the problem is like the well russia has 500 or 5,000 nuclear warheads, right? So it's not exactly like we can, the world can just say no, but I mean, you know, we're talking about like a very interesting dispute. Whereas 200 years ago, if one country wanted another country, they would just take it by force and everyone would be like, okay, that's your country now. Well, that, that we're back to you strength. Know? You know, I mean, as you, as you said, yeah. Remarkable achievement that we've achieved that on an individual basis, and that and that is entirely down to the power of words. Mm -hmm. We just need to scale that up. I mean, we've kind of done it to the level of countries in most of the so-called Western world. They're, they're not fighting each other. If there's an issue, there's something there's a democratic resolution to it. But the thing that the, the particularly worrying thing for me now about the way Ukraine is is being talked about is that. We're saying, well, okay, Putin's actions are illegal, and that is true. But the only reason that they are illegal, because as you just said, you know, in the last few hundred years, it's like you want something, you take it. 
It's not illegal, it's just what you did. So why is what Putin doing now illegal? And the only reason is because of the United Nations. Mm -hmm. There's no other reason. So if we're saying, okay, well, NATO should be doing more, NATO should go in, NATO should, uh, should stop Putin. There's no more reason for NATO to go in and stop Putin than there is for Putin to not go in. And, and that's just war. That is war. Mm -hmm. you know? Now, through the United Nations, we agreed that we're not going to do that. We agreed that everybody signed up, including Russia, signed up to the idea that you do not invade a sovereign country. That's just against the rules. It's like you do not assault somebody. You don't mm -hmm. do it. Now, it's taken long enough for us to figure out that assault really is something that we don't tolerate. And it's probably going to take a lot longer for us to work out that you know, we don't invade countries. And we haven't got the mechanism, as you said, for doing it, except if we were to take a vote, well, we did take a vote in the UN basically saying Russia has broken the rules. And we demand that they withdraw, but there's no there's no force behind that. But if we were to say through the United Nations, okay, we've agreed that you, you, you should be out, democratically a decision, you should get out of Ukraine, then we should have a police force, you know, and we should basically say, and if you don't, we'll take you out. Now, you can say, oh, but he's got nuclear weapons, and yes, he does, but he knows too, or maybe he doesn't, but his guys know, that if they use their nuclear weapons, they're dead too. So there is an argument for saying maybe we should, you know, through the United, if he went through the United Nations, he would have to acknowledge that it was a legal thing to mm -hmm. take him on. Whereas if we go as part of NATO and just sort of sneakily add in lethal aid and do that, that's war, you know. And there's yeah. a, it's, it's, you can say, oh, it's just words, but words are what count, you know, in the end. Language is yeah. what makes us human, yeah. Exactly. And, well, I mean, the UN would need an army, right? And the most powerful army in the world, technically speaking, because, you know, because you just take Putin as an example. I mean, it, it could be anyone, right? And it will be other people in the future because humans are problematic. And I'm not saying Putin is this or isn't, but, you know, you'll get psychopathic humans, you'll get deranged people who lust for power and will and violence and you know and that comes for all sorts of reasons like abuse and culture and history mm. and whatever whatever um power for the i mean you know the sake of having power and what, yeah. where that leads to the corruption of it um, well it's not even just that it's it like, can be ideological i mean the next thing if we don't sort out well even if we do but uh, uh, you know coming down the line of this is is taiwan and china Mm -hmm. uh, that that's not necessarily just about a lust for power. That's more of an ideological thing for them. It's like this is one country. This is our country, you know. Um, so, but isn't Putin viewing it the same way? Isn't he trying yeah. to reconstruct the Soviet Union? As In a way, he is. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's just what I've heard, right? Yeah. Well, he may whatever is in his head. The fact of the matter is that Ukraine is a sovereign country and was one of the founder members of the UN. And mm -hmm. he has no right to do that. And he's signed a legal agreement saying that he won't do that. So that is, <coughs> excuse me, that, that actually is the way you can use words. I mean, in the, in the um, 
the last chapter of my book, I talk about Martin Luther King and his, you know, when he came to Washington and made that speech about, I have a dream, you know, about the world actually respecting other cult, uh, you know, the, the, well, the black issue particularly. But the point was that he didn't just say, I have a dream, I, I wish you wouldn't do this to us. He said, you've actually agreed not to do it. And he, he said, I hold in my hand a check issued to me in the name of the United States government, which is the constitution which says that all men shall be treated equal. So he had an mm -hmm. actual legal case. And that was really the thing that pushed that forward. I mean, you can say, how much forward does it come? But it has. I mean, the, the, things are definitely improved in America than, than they were in the, in the 60s in terms of, you know, racial relations. Long way to go, but they have got better. And to the extent that they have, it's because it was a legal challenge that he made on the basis of the Constitution. So that's why laws are kind of important. So we have the United Nations, the United Nations Charter. That is a law that we've all signed up on. So we need to just make it work. And, and that may take some time, but that's got to be the direction of travel for the world if, if there is going to be a future for us. You know? Right, because laws are fundamentally just agreements yeah. that you make as a, uh, and sign up to as a society. And yeah. I mean, you, you'll have a hard time um, finding somewhere that doesn't have laws and influencing them, but it mm. happens and it usually happens through big movements, right? Lots of people, big societies. Yeah. Um, and if you don't agree to them, and then at collectively as a society, we've arranged, well, well, that, that, that you're either going to agree to this law and abide by it, let's say, rather, mm. you don't have to morally agree with it, but you have to respect and abide by That's it, the or yes. there will be consequences. Yes. Um, and then we can debate about what those consequences should be and whether mm. it's fair and a lot of it isn't, and it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, but you, a government has, you know, any, any given government has, basically has a monopoly on violence in the country, yeah. right? Yeah. They say, we're allowed to use violence on you to enforce our laws. Yeah. That sounds a bit dramatic, but that's really kind of that's how it is. That is it, yeah. But everyone signs up to it, uh, or at, well, least a, at least at least passively agrees, right? But, that's but then you get a situation like Putin, where he's like, what you going to do? You know, well, he's like, yeah, I agree yeah. to it. But so what? What you going to do? And we, there's nothing we can do at the moment. Yes, but if we then just say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do, so we'll just let him do it, then then what? You know? Oh, because no, listen, I am i don't think we should just let him. I, I don't have any real answers. I am yeah. by no means educated in, in this subject. Um, mm. and, and I don't know what should be done. I, I honestly have no idea. And, and I wish something was and could be done. And I sort of want to believe that people are doing the best that they can and maybe it's not good enough or maybe it is yeah i don't know but that's sort of just my assessment of how he's looking at the situation you know yeah and i and i i think this is essentially rather sadly probably going to be the best strategy to do which is just incrementally just wear it down and wear it down and wear it down until you know either he's dead or somebody's killed him more or gives up which just seems unlikely but the point is it's it's not something that we can just solve at a stroke but over and above that, the overarching thing for me is, are we doing this on behalf of who are we doing this? You know, are we doing this because we just don't want him to do it? You know, the West doesn't like Russia pushing us around, or are we doing it because we have all agreed that we didn't 
we're not going to do this. And and to me, that that's a higher level to take this. And the debate has to go there eventually. It may not go there now. We may not be ready for it. But in terms of how do we deal in the future with with violence in the world, it, it has to be that. And maybe we yeah. have to face it down at some point and go, okay, you've got nuclear weapons, but if you don't get out, we're going to hit you with what we need to to take you out. And if you use nuclear weapons, then you're out too. So we're all out. And really, you're going to do that? I, I just don't think somehow that uh, the entire Russian army is prepared to commit suicide, which is what it would be. But Yeah, or at least the sort of three people needed to make that decision. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. Which is a scarily low number of people. But it, in any country, that's pretty much how it is. But I, I mean, yeah. idealistically speaking, right, it's like, well, the discussion is about humanity, right? We're, we're not talking, I mean, we are talking about Ukraine, obviously. But yeah. as you say, that the broader perspective, which maybe will come more into focus once the conflict is over one way yeah. or another, um, it, it, it's about humanity and how we as a globe deal with things. And I mean, if anyone could just switch a button and say, okay, well, in order to do this, you know, maybe what needs to happen is the UN or some big, big board of people need to have a monopoly on global violence and can enforce rules however they see fit. And that'll come with problems, obviously, and yeah. corruption is everywhere. Um, yeah. But maybe at some point, humanity will try that. Um, and maybe, maybe it'll it work and maybe it won't. Maybe. Maybe it doesn't need to go that far. As I explore in my final chapter there, I mean, it's essentially we have already been in this situation, situation once before. People don't really know this anymore. But The Cold War. No, no, earlier than that. Well, it was during the Cold War, but I'm thinking of the Suez Crisis when oh, right. Britain and France decided they wanted to take the Suez Canal back from Egypt, who had nationalized it since it was in their land. And, and that... So they used, persuaded Israel to, to be the instrument to do that. Israel comes in and, and starts taking over the Suez Canal. There's, there's fighting going on. There's a, a meeting of the UN Security Council. And basically they decide you shouldn't you stop doing this. And Britain and, and France, both being nuclear powers, of course, said we're going to use our veto, just like Russia said it was going to use its veto when they debated Ukraine originally. And uh, so then what happened is that they took the decision out from the Security Council to the General Assembly, which means that everybody could vote on it. And there's a mechanism for doing that, and it's called the Uniting for Peace Resolution. You'll have to look it up. <laughs> but it's basically, they did that again in, for Ukraine. So you, in the Security Council, you have a veto, which means that Unless everybody agrees, you can't do anything. But in the General Assembly, it becomes a democratic decision. So what happened in Suez was that they decided that the democratic decision of the UN was that France and Britain and Israel should butt out, basically. And having decided that, they then said, then the, the Secretary General of the UN, Dag Hammarskjöld, said, right, in order for that to happen, we need to have an, an emergency force that's prepared to do this. So hands up, guys, who's going to do it? And 11 countries put
put their hands up and said, we're prepared to commit military force to this. And just the threat of that, even though Britain and France had nuclear weapons and could have used them, just the threat of that was enough to make them back off. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a feeling that that might work in the future too, and that you don't need a UN army as such. All you need, and in fact, it would be kind of dangerous and destabilizing in a way. I mean, every country is going to need to have some ports for form of military force as the backup for its own police system. But if you've got a functioning UN where decisions can be made internationally about whether a particular conflict is, is legal or, or justified or not, then just like with a police force, if the decision is no, back off, then you can just go, right, that's it. We're going to have an emergency force and who's going to do it? And that could be done in Ukraine. We could say, right, emergency force, who's going to do it? It's going to be NATO. Obviously, it's going to be NATO. They're the only ones who really have the power to do it. But doing it as NATO and doing it as the UN are two very different things, legally speaking, mm. because one is war, as we were saying earlier, and the other is a police action. And if we accept that the police have a, you know, a righteous power within any given society to enforce the laws, then the same principle applies internationally, or should do. And we will get there, but maybe not yeah. just tomorrow, you know? <laughs> yeah, slowly, slowly. And I think the other problem that we'd have to figure out is how, I mean, this is more of a, in my opinion, a grassroots approach of like, well, how do we get, how do we not have people in those positions making strategic decisions that benefit themselves more than what's the right thing to do right is maybe one way of saying it um like i don't know the details of the suez canal situation mm. but i can imagine that lots of countries were voting because it influenced them in one way or another and mm. they wanted to have it influence them for the better and so they're voting for that right. reason and right. not the reason of like oh well it's egypt's property that's theirs right. um it's a different problem um <laughs> that's yeah, a different problem. Moral that, that, problem. Applies, <laughs> that applies right across the board that you know people yeah of course based i mean but that's what democracy is democracy is like how many people agree for one reason or another that we're going to do this as opposed to that so we're mm -hmm. not all pure and we're not all saints it's it's never going to be it's always going to be messy but it's always and every be institution is subject to corruption right yeah but it's always going to be better than having one guy just saying you do it the way i say or i'm going to kill you or torture you mm -hmm. or do whatever else that it's got to be a better solution than that yeah, yeah. well listen simon this has been a fantastic podcast so thank you um where can people buy your book? Please promote anything um, that you would I'm like. I'm afraid you're going to have to go to Amazon. Um, but your local bookstore should be able to order it for you because I have some kind of distribution deal that I don't know about. But the easiest and quickest way is to go to Amazon and just look for speech, how language made us human. And uh, that should take you to it. Yeah. And I highly uh, recommend it. Um, or you can Google Simon Prentice and that'll come up. But that I'll have the links in the description my, as well. My website, yeah. Prentice spelled P-R-E-N-T-I-S. Only one S. Right. No C-E. <laughs> um, um, 
thank you. It, it's been a, a real pleasure. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah, let's do it. It would be nice. All right. Take care. Thanks.